Again, that's Mark chapter 10 on page 845. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands 
with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. That often happens. If we can stand as, as we are able, we will affirm our trust in Scripture. All flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You can be seated. I also do want to, to make a quick Announcement: There are sermon notes available. I know that they weren't out there right away when you first came, but they are there now if you want to go and get them. Um, today, we are continuing our journey 
through the book of Mark by looking at chapter 10. As Jesus continues his journey toward Jerusalem, he tells his disciples about his death and resurrection for a third time. They still don't get it, and then they continue the pattern of fighting amongst themselves. If you noticed in the scripture reading, we have a lot of grounds to cover today. So I'm going to do my best to get through everything, although we certainly are not going to cover cover everything in in in-depth detail. I would encourage you, as you have more questions and more thoughts, look at it, think about it, study it on your own, or even better, talk about it with another trusted believer. I will do my best to give us a good sense of everything this morning. My sermon in a sentence today is... The values of the kingdom are open hearts and open arms. The values of the kingdom are open hearts and open arms. Last week we got a taste of the kingdom, and this week we will look at the values of the kingdom. Open hearts and open arms. And my outline is this. First, we will look at the values of the kingdom through the different circumstances in the the passage. And we will see both what does not belong in the kingdom and also what does belong in the kingdom. Next, we will look at how the kingdom of God comes. And finally, we will look at how to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, And by the way, each of these, the values of the kingdom, how the kingdom comes, and how we enter the kingdom, they all come in unexpected ways that challenge our sin and our flesh. So first, we'll look at the values of the kingdom. And I'll probably spend the majority of my time on this point, but we'll see. Um, So if we're getting late and we're still on point one, maybe only worry a little bit. My goal is to go through most of the chapter and show us what Jesus values in each of these situations. Not only what he teaches, but what he does in that. We'll start with the first section in in verses 1 through 12, this question of divorce. And Jesus here is asked by the Pharisees a question in order to test him. He's asked a seemingly simple question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, I want to give a little bit of cultural background of this time, which is strikingly similar to the culture that we are in, which I guess is not that surprising. But there were at least two approaches to this particular question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The first approach is simply the only acceptable reason for divorce is infidelity or adultery. That's the only acceptable uh, reason for divorce. That's one approach. The other approach takes a much looser Uh, reason for it. Basically, it says this. You can divorce your wife if she displeases you. You can divorce your wife if she displeases you. Some teachers went so far as to say things like, if her cooking isn't good, that's an acceptable reason to divorce your wife. Others go even further and would say, if you find another woman who pleases you more, that's an acceptable reason to divorce your wife. 
As I said, these are strikingly similar to what we see today for reasons of divorce. One of the main differences that we see is, is that um, in that time, divorce was really only an option for men to give. Today, that has expanded, and anyone can leave anyone for whatever reason they would like. Um, and these two approaches, they come from the same place that Jesus starts his answer to them. They come from interpreting the law of Moses. Jesus asked them, what did Moses teach you? Can you divorce your wife? Or what did Moses teach you? They said, he said a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. That was the answer. That's what's written in the law of Moses. Now, the reason this question is asked is it's essentially asking, on what grounds is it okay to divorce your wife? When is it okay to get a divorce? Um, which is the wrong question to ask in its basis. When can we get a divorce? As I said, it's strikingly similar. Um, in fact, today, this idea of just wanting reasons to get divorced, wanting reasons to break away from a relationship, is so ingrained in our culture and in the world we live in that sometimes in situations where one partner is unfaithful to the other, people are now expected to support the new love that now exists. This is the world that is around us, and this is um, unfortunately not as different as we would like inside the church and outside of the church. There is a difference, and research does show that, that those who are committed to Christ, there is less divorce. Um, but it is certainly not something that we can pretend does not pertain to us, and just as an outside thing. Jesus answers the Pharisee, and he shows us the first thing that doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. As to this essential question that they're asking, when is it lawful to get divorced? Jesus says, it is because of the hardness of your heart that this law is written. So the first thing we see that does not belong in the kingdom is a hard heart. Now what do I mean by a hard heart in this circumstance? The way I look at it, it's looking for loopholes. The desire of this question in many circumstances is, how can I get divorced and still technically follow the law? I want to do what I want to do, but I also still want to feel righteous and justified in my actions. How can I follow the letter of the law while ignoring the more important things? I think is the essence of this question. We like to look for loopholes that we can exploit for our benefit. Sometimes in board games, if you came to the game night last night, or in youth group games, it can be really fun to look for loopholes to exploit. And then the rules either have to be refined or you come up with, with new house rules. But when it comes to the way that the world is supposed to work, the consequences are much greater. Jesus says this is not how the world is supposed to be. 
Divorce is never supposed to happen. He goes back much farther than the law of Moses, and much more foundationally. He goes back to creation. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God has designed it so that husband and wife live together for the mutual benefit of one another. This hardness of heart that causes us to look for loopholes, to feel righteous as we do things that God does not want, is to be replaced by an open heart. A heart that becomes one with the heart of the spouse. This can't be done with a hard heart that only seeks its own benefit. An open heart is open both to receive the other person with love and to seek the good of the other person. This goes against our flesh and against the world so much so that after Jesus talks to the Pharisees, the disciples talk to Jesus and they're like, really? Is this really your answer? Jesus says, yes, don't get divorced. Our flesh wants to seek its own good. And only its own good. We must be corrected by Jesus. And our hearts must be opened by Jesus. Now this isn't primarily a sermon about divorce. Uh, In fact, it's not primarily a sermon about any one of these particular things. My goal is to show the values And that a hardness of heart leads us to look for loopholes. How we can feel righteous while disregarding what God has in mind for us. What is good for us. We see a a very similar situation in verses 13 through 16. At least similar in the sense of only valuing what seems to benefit us. And not caring about others. So in this section, as Jesus was teaching, people were bringing children to him so that he can bless them. And this time, the disciples are the ones demonstrating what doesn't belong in the kingdom. They rebuke those bringing the children. They think Jesus is much too important to be bothered by children. Children aren't even real people. Not yet. They'll become real people. At best, they are an inconvenience that should be seen and not heard. Or maybe not even seen at all. Jesus very clearly says this does not belong in the kingdom. But it is certainly something that we struggle with today. Children are seen as a hindrance and something to be avoided. In fact, There are several countries where the population is decreasing because people simply aren't having children. Japan has a campaign and and multiple campaigns that are trying to get people to have kids. 
Now, I know that there are many reasons that people don't have kids, and there are certainly those who are unable to, but the widespread belief that children are inconvenience that take your freedom and ruin your life is certainly a part of it. We also see this in the atrocities of abortion. Children are so devalued that it would be better for them to die than to be born and impact my life. Children are constantly written off. I think this goes much further and much deeper than declining population and abortion. As big of a deal as those are, I think we can look more closely at our own lives. Again, each one of these could be a sermon in itself, and and this part has been a sermon that I've been preaching to myself this week. It's so easy to think of children as an inconvenience. I know that it's important to have time to ourselves and to recharge and to talk with other adults. But as parents, are we living for bedtime? I know we need to recharge, but is that our whole goal? Time to ourselves? Time where we can do what we want to do? Do we put up with our kids so that we can do the things that we really want? Do we parent with Disney Plus or tablets or video games? It's common for Beth and I when we go out to dinner to see families where the younger kids are given a phone or a tablet and headphones. And everyone seems happy at the table. The adults are able to have conversation uninterrupted, The children don't have to endure boring grown-up talk about finances and taxes and work. But this hurts both parties when this becomes the normal. Children are removed so much from our life that they're no longer distractions or inconveniences, but they're also removed from life. They don't learn how to converse or interact. They're not seen as part of the family but something to be managed. Jesus rebukes his disciples in this. Very clearly, he says, let them come to me. Children matter. In fact, he he takes it further. He says, for to such belong the kingdom of God. And then even further, and he says, in fact, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a child. Then he opens his arms, and he blesses the children, and he lays his hands on them. So lots to think about here, but in particular, children, if you're here, that's like those of you, I mean, you could pick a number that you're under. We'll go with 13. When you're 13, you're not really a child. You're starting to grow up. But children, hear me. Jesus loves you and wants you to be a part of his kingdom. He said, let the children come to me. And then he blessed them. What a good God we serve. 
And Jesus tells us to open our hearts like children do, and open our arms like he does to the children. Children have an innocence to them that exists until it's taken from them. I don't mean a sinlessness, but they accept things with a simple and innocent faith. Children are incredibly honest about their likes and dislikes. Just come have dinner with us. (laughs) And you will see. They also receive things that they see as good with joy and sincerity. We love to watch kids open gifts that they are excited about. They're just so happy. Adults, we have been beaten down by life and have become so skeptical that it is hard for us to receive good things. We always look for a catch. Jesus says, open your heart like a child and receive the kingdom of God. And as he does this, as he teaches us to open our hearts, he literally opens his arms to receive the children and bless them. His open heart goes hand in hand with his open arms. As should ours. As we open our hearts, we open our arms to bless and to love others, to value them as the Lord does. So we must do this, even when we don't see a direct benefit to ourselves. So we must accept and embrace the value of the kingdom that children are a blessing. From here, Jesus sets out on his journey, and as he sets out, he's approached by a rich young man. This is a famous story that many of us have heard before. The man asked Jesus a pretty foundational and important question, how do I inherit eternal life? We all want to know. Jesus first points him to the law. Says, keep the law. And the man says, uh, I would argue erroneously, I have kept the law. But Jesus just kind of takes it and goes on in this next part. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said some really hard things to him. He said, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and follow me. He looked at him, he loved him, And he said, sell your stuff, give to the poor, and follow me. The man goes away sad. He was seeking eternal life, and he rightly came to Jesus for it. But he went away sad because he was rich. And then Jesus tells his disciples something shocking. He says, it is hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. They're so surprised by this. It's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of God that they ask, well, then who can be saved? The assumption here is that wealthy people are blessed by God and closer to God. So if it's easy for anyone to get into the kingdom of God, certainly it's easy for rich people. And if it's hard for rich people to do, what hope do poor people have? But then Jesus tells them even harder news. 
mixed with incredible news. He says, with man, it is impossible to be saved. What? How is that helpful, Jesus? It's hard for a rich man to be saved, and it's impossible for every man to be saved? But then he goes on, but he says, but with God, all things are possible. So you could look at this story with a lens of lots of things. We're going to look at it from values that don't belong in the kingdom and what does belong. And we see what doesn't belong is self-dependence. Part of the reason that it is difficult for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God is that wealth tells us we can always get what we need. Money will save us. We don't need saving because we can save ourselves. Are you hungry? There's no need to pray for God to provide for you. Use the money that you have and turn these stones into bread. Are you worried about not having enough? No need to worry with a big bank account. Everything will take care of itself. Money will solve all your problems. We don't ask for things that we think we can do ourselves. I just shared this illustration uh, with some of my youth. Now I get to share it with you. Growing up, I would go to all the church events that I could. I would go to junior camp when I was that age. I would go to camp. I would go to mission trips. I would go to retreats. Anything that we could go to, I would go to. And one thing that we always did every trip, but we, we still do, by the way, uh, is that before we leave, we would pray for safe travels, for travel mercies, or at least most of us was. There was a, a short time where some of us in junior camp prayed for a flat tire so that we could uh, visit the Walmart Supercenter. <laughs> it was lots of fun for us. But in general, the adults were praying against us, so... In general, we prayed for, for safe travels, and I was fine with that as a kid, but I was much more interested in praying for fun. I also, I wondered why we prayed for things like that. Why did we pray for things like safe travel? Because to me, it always seemed like a given. I had always gotten where I needed to get safely. Even if there were flat tires or breaking down or things like that, it was always safe. We always made it. Everything was fine. So it seemed like an unnecessary prayer. So I certainly didn't pray that. When other people prayed it, I was like, sure, yeah, God, give us safe travels. But not something that, that I was thinking about. Now that I am a bus driver <laughs> and in charge of getting people from one place to the other, I pray for safety often. I pray before we leave. I pray as I'm driving. I pray as a big truck passes me or I pass a big truck. And I am thankful when we get there safely. Why? Because I am well aware, as the one in control of the bus, that I am not really the one ultimately in control if we get there safely or not. The Lord is. So I ask for what I need, and now I see a need and I ask it. I think wealth is similar. When we think that things are given, we don't ask for them. When we don't need to ask for things, 
We don't recognize our need for other things. We also tend to hold on to our money and stuff because that's what we rely on. That's our God. That's our Savior. Why would I give up what I need? I need it. This often leads to both closed hearts because we don't see our need for God and for others and also closed arms, refusing to give generously to others for fear of losing what we depend on. Jesus challenges that. He calls us to give up our closed hearts and arms of self-dependence and selfishness and to open our hearts to depend on and follow Jesus and then open our arms to be generous to others. And then he tells us this, it's, it's amazing. He tells us that what we give up, we actually get more of and better of. Because Peter tells Jesus, he said, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. What about us? And then Jesus tells them they will get more, both in this life and in the life to come. He tells us about the blessing of the church, of the family of God. And when you enter the kingdom of God, you get the benefits of the kingdom. And when your king is rich, you are rich. It may not look like big bank accounts, but fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and houses is far better. I see the benefit of this church often and all the time of getting brothers and sisters and mothers and and houses, and meals, and love. Whatever we give up, God is giving us more and better. As they're walking to Jerusalem, Jesus tells his disciples about his death and resurrection for a third time. And then we see an interesting interaction And we're not skipping the part about Jesus and his death and resurrection. We're going to come back to it, I promise. But first, I want to look at this interaction between the disciples in verses 35 through 45. First, we see James and John ask Jesus for this position of authority on his right and on his left side. And he tells them it's not his to give. We're given the short versions of this. And then the disciples are upset with James and John. Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them what leadership in the kingdom looks like. He tells them that outside the kingdom of God, rulers use their power to serve themselves. He says this has no place in the kingdom. If you want to be great, then serve others. Don't use your position of power to serve your own interests. Instead, use your position to benefit those you are leading. A great leader not only accomplishes great things, but they do so by bettering the lives of those they are leading. This takes valuing others with open hearts and open arms. As we lead, our hearts must be open to consider, what do those that I'm leading need? And how can I give it to them? How can I serve them? And then our arms must be open to work towards that that benefits them. The values of the kingdom are open hearts and open arms, both to God and to others. Now let's turn our attention to how this kingdom comes. 
Going back to those verses, Jesus tells his disciples for the third time how he will be bringing the kingdom. And this time he gets very specific. He tells them where they are going. He tells them what's going to happen, who's going to do it, and to an extent, how it will happen. This is verse 33 and 34, if you'll look with me. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. This is not what would be expected at all. What kind of king wins by dying? What kind of kingdom begins with a loss? But what's interesting is here in this this chapter, we see that Jesus not only tells his disciples what kind of values belong in the kingdom, but then he demonstrates them in each circumstance. And then he demonstrates them on the cross. He tells us, Divorce isn't the way it's supposed to be. Marriage represents Christ and the church. And then he gives his life to reconcile the relationship between God and humanity. He said, this is what love is. He opens his heart to open our hearts. He seeks the best for humanity at great cost to himself instead of sending us away for our infidelity as we deserve. He calls us back to himself. He not only welcomes children to his arms when the disciples try to keep them away, but through the cross, he gives the right to those who believe to become children of God. He says, receive this as a child would, humbly and graciously, as he gives his life, He gives up all his wealth and power to give to the poor. He chooses not only to be born in a stable and live a humble life of homelessness, but when challenged to come down from the cross and prove himself, prove your power, prove your wealth, prove your authority, he absolutely could have. Instead, he chose to give his life when he talks about servant leadership here. Later on, he not only washes his disciples' feet and models what servant leadership looks like, but he says here in Mark 10, 45, the whole reason that he came, he said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He said, I come to serve you, and I serve you with the cross and with my resurrection. As Jesus tells his disciples about his death in very specific details, he tells them each time that he will rise again after three days. Almost as if he's hinting at the fact that whatever you give up in this life for God, you will get much more in the life to come. Jesus doesn't stay dead. He is alive and rules, not as a dead king, but as an eternal king who has conquered sin and death in hell. He gave his life as a ransom for many. We do deserve to die and face the wrath of God, 
But Jesus, as the servant king, takes our place and makes our relationship with him right. Not only that, but his grace and mercy transform our hearts into what they should be. This is true both in this life and in the life to come. Jesus works on us to give us the values of the kingdom. These values are not inherent in us. And this sermon is not, go be better. But Jesus transforms us and trains us with his grace to give us these values. And in the life to come, our hearts will be whole. We will love as we should love. We will open our hearts and our arms as we should. And what a day that will be. So finally, let's turn our attention on how can we enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us it is impossible with man. Meaning there's no way to earn your way into the kingdom. There's nothing you or I can do to get in. It's impossible with man. You can't be good enough. You can't keep the law well enough. You can't get in just by selling your stuff and giving to the poor. Jesus didn't say it's hard for the rich to get in, but the poor get in automatically. He said it was impossible with man. You can't serve enough. You can't volunteer enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't go to church enough or the right amount of times. But with God, the impossible is possible. Meaning God makes a way for us to enter his kingdom. Let's look at the final part of our chapter, verses 46 through 52. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus passes through Jericho. And as he's leaving, there's a blind man named Bartimaeus. He hears that Jesus is around and starts to cry out for Jesus to have mercy on him. What a right cry. He recognizes his need. He wasn't coming to Jesus demanding to be healed because he deserved it. He cried for mercy, something undeserved. The crowd writes him off, tells him to be quiet. But he won't listen. He cries out even more. Jesus stops and calls Bartimaeus to himself. He asks him, what does he want? And then he gives him what he asks for. He heals him. He gives him his sight. Bartimaeus is healed and then follows Jesus. This is a stark contrast to what we see with the rich man. The rich man sought Jesus out, but was unwilling to follow him. Bartimaeus didn't seek Jesus out. Jesus came to where he was. And then he called him to himself, and then he healed him. And then Bartimaeus follows Jesus. This is how we can enter the kingdom of God. It is only through the mercy and love of Jesus. His mercy is offered to all people. To the rich, to the blind, to the old, to the child. The rich man loved his money and didn't know his true need. The blind man knew his need and received the gift Jesus offered. It is impossible with man, but Jesus makes salvation possible through his death and resurrection. And all we need to do is accept the mercy given to us by Jesus. 
to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. If you are hearing my voice, and if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you haven't received his mercy and his grace, then I encourage you, cry out to Jesus for his mercy. This is why he came. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. His desire is to save people, to bring them into his kingdom. So cry out to him. Come and meet him. Hear his voice as he is calling to you. As we transition into communion, if you don't know Jesus yet, don't come forward. Instead, go to Jesus. Trust in his death and resurrection for the salvation of your soul. And then follow him. If you would like to process this with someone or want to, pr to pray with someone for any reason, really, Beth and I will be available over here and happy to talk with you and pray with you during communion or afterwards. As we come to the table, we remember what God has done for us. We remember the cost of the cross, of what Jesus endured to give us life. So as you come, come forward. There's communion set up in the balconies as well. If you want, you can take more time, take communion back to your seat and process and pray. If you're unable to come forward, please raise your hand and an elder will bring it to you. It's our desire that everyone gets to experience the grace of God. So I'll pray and then we will take. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. We thank you that you make it available to all, to the old, to the young, to the rich, to the poor. We thank you that you came to give your life as a ransom, that you were willing to give up all the wealth all the goodness of heaven. You were able to come, you were willing to come here to suffer so that you could understand us as our great high priest. That you were willing to die. That your obedience knew no bounds. And that you rose again, conquering sin and death and hell. Lord, you are victorious over the things that plague us. You are the king. So we come to your table. We worship you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let's take together.